This is Missing Alyssa, a podcast documentary series about the unsolved disappearance of Alyssa Turney, a teenage girl from Phoenix, Arizona. Alyssa has been missing since 2001. Hi, I'm Octavia Zappala, and this is episode 14 of Missing Alyssa. It's 2011. Here in Maricopa County, a man named Rick Valentini was sentenced to 22 years in prison for the murder of his girlfriend, Jamie Lyady. The case was built entirely on circumstantial evidence. At the time of the trial, Jamie's body hadn't been found. There was no DNA evidence, no fingerprints, and no witnesses, only a long string of clues. But prosecutors believed they had enough evidence to prove Valentini killed his girlfriend. Here's what they had. After Jamie disappeared from Chandler in March of 2010, Valentini starts using her credit cards and driving her car. Jamie left all of her belongings behind, including her cell phone, her purse, her passport, and even her birth control. Yet, Valentini insisted Jamie left for Colorado to start a new life. Investigators also discovered that Valentini, a personal trainer, had made disparaging comments about Jamie, claiming, among other things, that he only stayed with her for her money. An inmate sharing Rick Valentini's prison cell claims that Valentini said things such as, the police know I killed her, and even asked if someone can be charged if a body isn't found. The investigation started several weeks late, so any physical evidence or eyewitnesses were lost. At trial, his defense argued that she was alive, but evidently didn't want to be found. But the state won the case anyway. After losing his job as a personal trainer, Valentini had been living off of Jamie's money. Prosecutors argued he didn't want to lose the standard of living to which he had grown accustomed. Eight years after the murder, and long after he was convicted, a construction crew digging in an undeveloped area accidentally unearthed Jamie Lyady's remains. I was struck by this case because it shares so many similarities with Alyssa's disappearance. Jamie left all of her belongings behind, abruptly cutting ties with family and friends from one day to the next. The last person to see her told everyone she had moved out of state to start a new life. After the fact, several witnesses came forward to talk about the strained relationship between the missing person and the last person to see her. Finally, an investigation that started too late to recover any hard evidence. Not to mention, the perpetrator was tried in the same county that Alyssa disappeared from. The prosecutor was Juan Martinez. Legendary in Arizona legal circles because of some bizarre cases he had worked on, Martinez is known for his colorful way of presenting evidence and for being a relentless, fierce opponent in the courtroom. But across the nation, Martinez is mostly known for the high-profile trial of Jody Arias, a young woman who killed her boyfriend, Travis Alexander, in 2008. Arias stabbed Alexander in the back almost 30 times while he was in the shower. She also slashed his throat and shot him once in the head before leaving the scene. Five days later, when Alexander was found, he was still inside the shower and his body was badly decomposed and a really gruesome scene. The murder and trial gained widespread attention in the United States. Arias was convicted of first-degree murder, and in 2015, she was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. While at CrimeCon in Nashville last year, I interviewed Mr. Martinez. I was surprised by his mellow demeanor and soft-spoken tone outside the courtroom. As I expected, Martinez had never heard of Alyssa, nor did he know who Michael Turney was. Remember, Turney was tried in a federal court, not the state court. So I filled him in and I asked him why he felt that the Valentini case was prosecutable. What is the criteria for prosecuting a no-body murder case that you require in order to go ahead with it? 
I don't really think that there's such a thing as criteria. Each case is reviewed on its own merits, and you, you try to see uh, whether there is an interruption in the life pattern. If there's such an interruption in the life pattern and it can be explained, then obviously the, the individual may be somewhere. But if that interruption in the life pattern uh, cannot be explained and somebody for example, a boyfriend or a relative or somebody like that is offering an explanation that doesn't make sense, but uh, you, you, you can actually are able to um, then perhaps make a, a more informed decision as to whether or not you're going to charge them or not. So like I said, every case is different, but generally what you look for is an, an interruption in the life pattern. So physical evidence is not necessary. Well, I didn't have any DNA in my case, but um, it would be nice to have it. Generally, if, if you have some DNA evidence, obviously that's going to go a long way to um, helping you out. Any kind of evidence that you can find and bring it together that uh, may explain or not explain the interruption in the life pattern uh, is something that I would look at. So a large amount of circumstantial evidence, like in the Valentini case, is sufficient? Uh, well, circumstantial evidence is, is as good as direct evidence. Um, but in, in that the Valentine case, that's what it was. I, I mean, nobody saw him kill her, uh, but she was there one day, and he provided an explanation as to why she wasn't there. Uh, the second day, he's, generally speaking, has his her credit cards and her driver's license, and uh, he had made some comments before about her physical appearance, so that it was a situation where, in, in, in my assessment, it was something that uh, showed beyond a reasonable doubt that he was the person who had killed her. One of the things that was found in the, his condominium was uh, her driver's license and some of her credit cards, which indicated that he, at some point, had had contact with her and had taken those. People don't leave without their purse. They don't leave with their credit cards or driver's license. So that's part of the reason that uh, I was able to charge him. Like I said, the two cases share many striking similarities. But as I mentioned, Mr. Martinez hadn't heard of Alyssa Turney, so I couldn't ask him about his prosecution or lack thereof. From what I can see, the type of evidence presented during the trial of Rick Valentini is equivalent, both in quantity and in nature, to the evidence collected by the Phoenix Police Department during the investigation of Alyssa's disappearance. And in conversations with others, I haven't come across a whole lot of people who don't believe this case can be tried. But when I do, their arguments revolve around circumstantial evidence and double jeopardy. For instance, one of my listeners, a prosecutor from Texas, said she could understand why they can't proceed with the current evidence. She says, quote, the burden of beyond a reasonable doubt is a really high one. It's sad and frustrating and without an end, but an attempted prosecution without more evidence could mean the perpetrator could walk free. And if a jury found him not guilty, he could never be tried for this crime again. And I think the biggest worry is that if we rush a case or proceed on very little evidence, we will re-traumatize the victims and end up with a not guilty, which we then cannot pursue further. Regarding the evidence aspect, this is why I've been researching cases with similar types or amount of evidence. I don't see any significant difference between what prosecutors had against Valentini that they don't have for Alyssa Turney. I'd like to understand why, in some cases, such evidence is deemed sufficient and in others, it's not. As far as double jeopardy goes, I feel that in cases like these, it's worth giving it a shot because there is nothing to lose. And the reason for that is, it's unlikely that any new evidence in the Turney case will surface on its own. It's unlikely that there will ever be a confession or that after so long, any skeletal remains will be found. And if they're found, they may be too old to be analyzed or even for DNA to be extracted. 
And it's also unlikely that any potential witnesses that haven't come forward with critical information pertaining directly to a murder would choose to do so now, if any such witnesses even exist. Yet, the Phoenix Police Department claimed they are waiting for more evidence. Sarah just met with Commander Christina Gonzalez and was told that they do not have enough evidence to present the case to the county attorney's office. But the investigation is no longer active, from what I can tell, so the new evidence would just have to surface on its own. Furthermore, they told her they're not searching for a body because they wouldn't know where to search. And a contact from the county attorney's office has stated that in order for them to proceed, the Phoenix Police Department has to submit the case so that their prosecutors can review the information and evidence. Until then, he says, they can't comment on the case because they haven't seen it and they have no possible course of action. Here's another, more recent case that also took place in the Phoenix metro area. In 1987, a young mother named Donna Mae Jakobsen disappeared, leaving her children and all of her possessions behind. All she had on her were the clothes she was wearing. This case has been cold longer than Donna Mae has even lived. But in August 2017, her husband Kevin Jakobsen was indicted on the charge of second-degree murder. He was extradited from Washington State and he's currently awaiting trial in jail. The case is being prosecuted by Deputy County Attorney Robert Schutz. But Schutz declined to prosecute back in 1998. Yet Donna's body wasn't suddenly discovered. In fact, there is no significant new evidence either. But three decades after her disappearance, Kevin Jakobsen faces a murder charge. A definitive trial date has not been set, but according to the DA's office spokesperson, it's scheduled for next spring. If this case goes to trial, it'll be the oldest no-body murder case ever presented to a jury in Arizona. There's no new evidence, but what may have changed, according to the Arizona Republic, is the public's perception of domestic violence. Quote, what law enforcement may have dismissed as a lover's quarrel in the past is now deemed more serious than that. End quote. Nowadays, a history of violence between two people is considered important evidence. In fact, most of the time, no-body murder cases involve domestic violence. In 51% of no-body murders, a husband kills a wife, a boyfriend kills a girlfriend, or a parent kills a child. Another change that probably had an impact on the Jakobsen case is the growing rate of no-body murder trials. One of the first no-body trials in the United States was that of Leonard Ewing Scott for the murder of his wife Evelyn. That was 1959. This was the first time in U.S. history that someone was convicted of murder without any physical proof of death at all. In the past, some states actually forbade the prosecution of murder without a body. But the Scott case established clear legal precedent. Not only that murder can be proven without a body, but also that circumstantial evidence can be given just as much weight as eyewitness testimony or other forms of evidence. The ruling held that, quote, circumstantial evidence, when sufficient to exclude every other reasonable hypothesis, may prove the death of a missing person the existence of a homicide, and the guilt of the accused, end quote. Nowadays, like Mr. Martinez pointed out, under the law, circumstantial evidence is to be treated like direct evidence. Under the law, there is no distinction between the two. And at trial, juries are instructed to treat it in the same way. In fact, the distinction between the two types of evidence even varies from one prosecutor to the other. Former federal prosecutor Tad DeBias, for instance, only considers it direct evidence if someone sees the crime directly or if it's on video. According to him, DNA is still considered circumstantial evidence. Just because there's DNA, it doesn't mean a crime happened. DeBias was a homicide prosecutor in Washington, D.C. for many years. He became interested in bodiless murders and created the first centralized repository of information. He didn't comment on the Turney case. I interviewed him on the subject of no-body murder trials in general. What do you think has been the trend throughout history in regards to the prosecution of no-body homicides? Have, has it been happening more? 
Absolutely. If you look at the cases on the table. The audio from the interview wasn't good enough, so I'll have to speak on his behalf. He tells me that in the last decade and a half, there has been a huge increase of no body murders that have gone to trial. And there are three reasons for this. Number one, of course, is DNA, which has revolutionized all of criminal prosecution. Secondly, nowadays we leave behind so many distinct electronic trails that didn't exist before. Think cell phones, bank accounts, surveillance cameras, social media accounts. Take, for instance, welfare checks. Nowadays, they're typically deposited into a bank account. They're not checks anymore. And if nobody used the money, you can see that. Another example is social security numbers. They're used universally for people to get employment. When a person goes missing, you can run the number and find out whether the person has worked or received payment since they disappeared. None of this was possible 20 years ago, which means that now it's a lot easier to state that a person isn't missing or living in Acapulco, Mexico, because there's no electronic indication that they're alive. Lastly, you used to have to go a very long time before prosecution could make the argument that a person was dead. That time frame used to be anywhere from 5 to 10 years. The time frame between disappearance, arrest, and trial can now be as short as one to two years. Yet, bodiless murder convictions remain relatively rare. The odds of getting away with murder by concealing the victim are still very high. If you're clever enough and have enough foresight to plan a murder and hide a body, chances are you'll get away with it. As a prosecutor, says Tobias, I used to say that murder is the ultimate crime, and the no-body murder case is the ultimate murder case, because it's the most difficult type of murder case both to solve and then present at trial because you don't have the body, which is the main piece of evidence. But when a no-body murder does go to trial, it's very likely that there will be a conviction. The conviction rate of homicide cases in general, nationwide, is 71%. When no-body murder cases do go to trial, their success rate is higher, at 88%. And according to Tobias, there's two reasons for that. First off, prosecutors only handpick the strongest bodiless murder cases. Only those where they feel they have a strong chance of conviction. Weak no-body cases don't go to trial. That's because there's this built-in defense of the defendant saying, we don't even know if the victim's dead. The second reason is that most cases, about 51% of them, are domestic. We're talking about a husband killing a wife, a boyfriend killing a girlfriend, a parent killing a child. When you have those cases, your suspect tends to be very obvious. It doesn't mean that the person did it, but when you have a wife that goes missing, the husband is the most logical suspect, and so on. A lot of time, these are cases where the victim is someone whose victimology is such that there's not a whole universe of people that want to kill this person. You're not talking about someone who might be involved in a drug trade or in prostitution. Not that it justifies their murder, but they're leading a riskier lifestyle, as opposed to a mother of three who's a nurse and doesn't come into contact with the more serious criminal element. When those people disappear, the most logical suspect is a person close to the victim. The problem becomes, the longer you go, the less chances there is of realistically finding remains. Because as we know, bodies decompose and eventually fall apart. And so when you're talking about a temperate location like Florida or Texas, if a body is outside, it's not going to be outside for very long. Within two to three years, you're going to have a very difficult time finding remains. So even though when Tobias consults with investigators, he always tells them it's critical to try and find a body, a lot of times, the cases he looks at are so old that realistically, the chances of finding one are very slim. So at that point, it's a matter of figuring out how to move forward without it. I've been reading a book called Erased, Missing Women, Murdered Wives by Mary Lee Strong. Strong is a journalist that specializes in psychology and criminology. In this book, she presents the profile of a type of criminal that she calls an eraser killer. I'm going to be quoting her on and off in this section. The eraser killer's victim is an intimate partner, like a spouse or an ex-girlfriend. And yet, the crime doesn't fit the pattern of domestic violence. Most domestic violence cases involve jealousy, money, 
infidelity, explosive rage, or revenge because the victim is planning on leaving her killer. Although sometimes one or more of these motives can be present as well, eraser killers are not exclusively driven by those things, but rather by utilitarian purposes. Eraser killers are not driven by rage or lust. They're not set loose by drugs or alcohol. They don't kill for the reasons normally ascribed to murders, such as greed, sex, or jealousy. Quote, they eliminate the women in their lives because the victims no longer serve any purpose or are seen as impediments to the kind of life they covet and fantasize for themselves. In his mind, he is not really murdering a human being, but simply rearranging the world to better suit his needs. End quote. In other words, the woman in question has become an inconvenience in the life of the eraser killer. The reason he doesn't feel any guilt is because he feels entitled to kill anyone who stands in the way of his happiness. Notice that the word eraser describes both the motive and the method of killing. The victim's body is erased, either because the killer destroys it entirely or because he hides it where it can never be found. Most of the time, killing an intimate partner happens in the heat of passion or during a moment of rage. The murder is not planned, but eraser killers kill in cold blood. The murder is planned well in advance and executed with meticulous care. And since the crime is premeditated, when there is a crime scene, it will be what criminal profilers call an organized crime scene. The killer stages a false scenario that erases any connection between himself and the murder. This is the type of crime scene investigators do not expect to see in domestic violence cases, which are usually messy and disorganized. In some cases, the scene is staged in a way to make it seem like the victim was abducted by a stranger. But the facts that unfold do not fit the pattern that such a crime typically leaves behind. Except for a few notorious cases involving serial killers or sexual predators, grown women are not stolen off the street or ripped from their homes by perfect strangers, never to be seen again dead or alive. We don't need to live in fear of mysterious men in vans. Most of the time, women are killed by a man they once loved. In fact, according to Tad DeBias, most no-body murder cases are domestic and the majority of victims are female. Eraser killers often strangle or suffocate their victim in order to minimize the amount of physical evidence at the crime scene. And according to DeBias, when we know how a body was disposed of, say if the body was found after the trial or if the defendant tells someone, for instance, it's generally in a body of water. Eraser killers often go to extraordinary lengths, not just to manipulate the crime scene or make the victim disappear, but also to manipulate the police, the courts, and the justice system. Strong defines it as an enjoyable battle of wits in which he is sure he will always come out on top. The eraser killer believes he is smarter and better than the rest of us, and certainly smarter than the police and more deserving than his victim. He's often familiar with the law and how law enforcement agencies work. He might have done extensive research in order to support his plan. Quote, eraser killers exploit the safeguards built into the legal system, principles enshrined in our constitution to protect honest citizens from unreasonable searches of their property and from being forced into making false confessions as if those honored protections were simply escape hatches to provide a safe haven for someone capable of pulling off an expert murder, end quote. The eraser killer exhibits no mourning or other sign of emotional loss. Although he may actively participate in the search for the missing person, he will be using his full array of skills to direct any inquiries or police investigation toward fictitious threats and other suspects and away from himself. They don't fear punishment because they feel that they will never get caught. And according to Strong, it is very rare for eraser killers to ever admit to their crimes. These types of criminals often have no criminal record and sometimes no history of violence. They lead what is often considered an ordinary and productive life and are often considered to be exemplary citizens. Quote, he has always been a fabricator of reality, a compulsive, pathological liar whose lies are meant to get a reaction out of others, such as admiration or evoking their sympathy. End quote. Manipulation is a core feature of how he interacts with others. 
The eraser killer makes up stories, big or small, to get what he wants, but also often lying about things for no apparent reason. It's not clear why, but sometimes they lie even when there's no reason to lie, even when it's likely they'll get caught. Their actions are at one moment expertly calculated and the next incomprehensibly self-defeating. Strong delves into the complex and often contradictory psyche of eraser killers. She studies a cluster of psychological traits called the dark triad. Quote, His real motivations stem from the unique psychology of men with a particular set of dangerous traits that psychologists named the dark triad. End quote. These are psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. Narcissists are individuals who have a grossly inflated sense of their own abilities and importance. They have an insatiable need to be admired. Many of them lead elaborate double lives, pretending to be someone they are not. But on the flip side of this is insecurity. Any evidence that does not fit the grandiose view a narcissist holds of himself must be denied, devalued, and avoided at all costs. Machiavelli is the author of the 16th century political treaties who advocated that the end justifies the means approach to wielding political power. Individuals with a high degree of Machiavellianism have a strong utilitarian view of the world. They consider other people as just pawns in their game. Machiavellianism is also associated with sexual aggression, and according to Strong, these individuals are schemers who use every means at their disposal, such as flattery, manipulation, or deceit, to gain advantage over others. Strong argues that a combination of these three psychological traits is frequently found among eraser killers. She talks about several well-known cases to illustrate this profile. One of them is Scott Peterson, a salesman who killed his pregnant wife in 2002. Peterson killed his wife Lacey and their unborn child because he wanted to be single again and dreaded the responsibilities of parenthood. He was also driven by financial concerns. According to Strong, who studied the case, he frequently told lies about himself whenever he had a chance to inflate his own image. He was a compulsive liar, often lying in ways that were easy to get caught. But he exhibited a complex pattern of lying, where his stories were maintained and elaborated over long periods of time. Strong believes Peterson based his plan on a number of highly publicized prior disappearances. For instance, he learned how oversights and inaction in the crucial first days of a disappearance may prevent a killer from ever being charged. For this reason, Peterson may have chosen to carry out the crime and report his wife missing on Christmas Eve, perhaps assuming no experienced detectives would look into it for several days. Enough time for the trail to grow stale and to cover its tracks. Lacey's remains were later found in the San Francisco Bay. One thing that has been happening and that I'm really excited about is I've been getting messages from people that work in different fields and they contribute to this podcast regarding their areas of expertise. I really appreciate that because as you know, I'm a journalist and while I went to grad school for criminology and I specializing in missing person and cold case investigations, I'm not an attorney, a psychiatrist or a homicide detective. So this information crowdsourcing has been really helpful in filling in some of those areas where I'm not an expert. For instance, I got an email from a licensed professional counselor. She works in the forensic unit of a state hospital in the United States. She asked me not to disclose her identity, so I'll just refer to her by her first name, Melissa. She works with individuals who have been found not guilty by reason of insanity and not competent to stand trial. Her patients are individuals who have severe and persistent mental illnesses. And she sits on the state review board for finding people manifestly dangerous. In short, she says, I work with people like Michael Turney every day. Melissa tells me that while she has not personally conducted a clinical interview with him and she isn't his treating practitioner, she believes Turney meets the diagnostic criteria for delusional disorder. Delusions are beliefs or impressions that are firmly maintained despite being contradicted by what is generally accepted as reality or rational argument. 
Delusional disorder is a mental illness where the patient presents delusions, but without experiencing actual hallucinations. In fact, a person with delusional disorder may be high-functioning in daily life. My personal disclaimer here is that these are not my opinions, and I'm not qualified to make a psychological assessment, so I'm just reading from Alyssa's email. One of the things that sets delusional disorder apart from other psychotic illnesses, says Melissa, is that people with delusional disorder can live fairly normal lives apart from their delusions. It seems like after Barbara died, the stress of her death and raising two children on his own advanced his delusions. It's common for people like Mike to have authentic, loving relationships and to be loving parents. She continues, You can expect him to change topics quickly, speak to you condescendingly, and bring up topics that have no relation to his original delusion. For example, he was initially suggesting that the IBEW did something to Alyssa, but then switched subjects and focused on her IEP, as if he was planting a seed that maybe that had something to do with her disappearance. Here are a few other characteristics associated with this disorder. No matter how unlikely it is that these strange things are happening to them, the patient accepts them relatively unquestioningly. An attempt to contradict the belief is likely to arouse an inappropriately strong emotional reaction, often with irritability and hostility. They will not accept any other opinions. The individual experiences a heightened sense of self-reference, events which, to others, are non-significant, are of enormous significance to him or her, and the atmosphere surrounding the delusions is highly charged. Without treatment, says Melissa, people with delusional disorder are dangerous because of their persecution complex. As you've noticed, the last few episodes have focused on themes such as domestic violence and sexual assault, and I didn't really plan for that. That's just where the story led me. And I wasn't anticipating this, but I've received so many messages from women that identify with these themes and have either been molested or have had an abusive parent or step-parent, or who are familiar with domestic violence. Some people have sent me messages sympathizing with Donna, which I forwarded to her. I've had a lot of people share their stories. Some of them said they'd never told anyone before. Missing Alyssa listeners are so amazing. I've had so many people offering their support, offering to help search for Alyssa or to fund search efforts, and all sorts of suggestions of that nature. I try to respond to each and every one of you, but sometimes I miss some, so I apologize if I haven't replied. It's not intentional. If you look at our social media or follow Sarah, you may have seen that Alyssa got an honorary high school diploma from Paradise Valley High a little while ago. I want to give a shout out to Crime Junkie and Case File Podcast that recently talked about Alyssa and my show and made a lot of people aware of this case and helped me climb the charts. We have about one and a half million downloads since we launched, and I want to thank our listeners for caring so much and helping us get the story out. I was also thrilled when the former mayor of Phoenix, Congressman Greg Stanton, tweeted that Missing Alyssa was one of his favorite podcasts. And we also made it to Stitcher's top picks for 2018. Missing Alyssa will be at CrimeCon in New Orleans this summer. Come meet me and Sarah and all of your favorite podcast hosts at Podcast Row. And I have a promo code for you to get a 10% discount off your ticket. Use the code MISSING19 in all caps at checkout. I hope to see you there. If you haven't done it yet, please take a minute out of your day to rate and review. Missing Alyssa is produced and hosted by me, Ottavia Zappala. Audio editing and production help by Raz Yalov. Our original music was created by Michael Fornwalt. The artwork was done by Michelle Reyes. Social media by Brooke Nelson.